Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Okay, so on the new website, we have just released a bunch of new webinars, and I am super excited. My plan is to do a monthly webinar going forwards. So we've just launched eight new webinars for the rest of this year and even leading into 2023. You guys are going to be able to access all of these webinars completely for free. I'm not going to charge for any of these, even though I probably could. They're going to be very, very high value. But you can access all of these for free if you guys go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar. So you can either go that route or if you guys just go to the new website and you go to expatmoney.com and you scroll up to the header menu and under resources, there should be a tab there that says webinars. Go to that, look at the page. We've got webinars on a bunch of different countries in Latin America. We've got some crypto ones coming up. We have different types of investment. It's going to be really excited. So what I want you to do is kind of take a second here pause this episode. Don't forget about this episode. This episode is still really important to listen to. But pause this episode, go to the website and register for the webinars that make sense for you. So if you go to expatmoney.com and go to the header, you're going to be able to find the drop down on resources or just go directly and go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. These are going to be a lot of fun. We're going to do them live. I think most of them are going to be at 7 p.m. Central time. We might have a couple that are starting at different times, but every single month, new webinars on going offshore. Okay, go check it out and let's get back to the episode. Hello, Mikael. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I saw the description of your podcast. I was like, that is so neat. I have to be a guest here. This is going to be amazing. Well, I'm thrilled that you are because this is, so there'll be a lot of people who don't know who you are and partly because I know you have your own show and you have a very specific audience, but there's probably a whole lot of people who don't know anything about expatriation. Like I'm saying, what? They know about Hemingway and Fitzgerald and the whole lost generation of the 20s. And that's probably all that they know. And that's fine. Go read some more Dos Passos. But before we get into what does that mean and why would you want that, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be this, I guess we'll say expert in expatriation. Sure. I'll tell the full story because I think we have the time. I'll try not to make it too, too long. And if if your listeners have heard me on other podcasts, then you may have heard it before. But basically what happened was when I was a child, I was diagnosed with a learning disability. 
And what happened, Dan, was I was in grade three and the teacher pulled me out of class and they brought me to a little room. And in the room was like the, the resource teacher and the principal and the vice principal, et cetera, et cetera. And they sat me down and they said, Mikkel, Mikkel, something doesn't work quite right in your brain. And what we want to do is send you to a special school, special school for special boys. So that's what they did. Every day for three years, I got on a little white bus and I took a little white bus across town and I went to this quote unquote special school. The only problem was that it actually wasn't a special school. It was a special class in a regular school. So you can probably imagine what happened. I got picked on. I got bullied. I got in lots of fights and I basically had a horrendous experience. Now, this is no woe is me, poor Mikkel, poor Mikkel, the victim. I mean, I gave as good as I got. There is no question. I hit and I hit back. I'm not a pacifist by any means. I'm a very outspoken libertarian. I will absolutely defend myself. But I went through this educational experience for three years and I hated it. I hated everything about it. I hated what it stood for. And I used to come home from school every day crying. But after three years, I got an opportunity to go back to my neighborhood school. And I was so excited. I thought, wow, my friends will have been missing me so much. And they're going to be so excited to see me. And life is going to be gumdrops and rainbow and all of this shit again. So I went back to my normal school. And then same kind of thing happened. You can kind of imagine. Oh, I remember Mikkel. He went to some retard school. 1980s, totally politically correct. Children are so sensitive. That's how it is. Anyways, I really decided that I didn't like school. So I stopped going. And then I started failing. And they sent me to summer school and I'd fail summer school. And then somehow I'd squeak into the next year and then I'd fail that. And then they'd try again. And 12 years old, I stopped going to school. And at 15, I officially dropped out. I was really left with a bad taste in my mouth for education in general and specifically anything to do with state-run education and state-run anything, to be honest. And I started traveling, and I started traveling internationally as a teenager. I started meeting all these amazing people who were doing incredible things and were doing it so totally different than what I was brought up to think is nice and normal and proper. And I learned that there is not only one way to learn something or live your life. And fast forward, and 22 years later, I am still traveling. I'm still exploring the world. I've been to, I think, 108, 109 countries at this point. I'm still on the road exploring new places. Been, I've lived in nine countries in the last 22 years, and I've circumnavigated the globe over 400 times. So I really built my entire business around these concepts of internationalization on things that I was learning how to do myself over the last 22 years. And I did it without a formal education. I never went back to university. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an accountant or a CPA, and, and I don't play one on television. I learned how to do this by doing it myself, by mentoring under other lawyers and very well-educated people who were generous with their time, and reading an extraordinary amount of books. I mean, thousands upon thousands of books on the topic of business and on how this is done. And that's what I do now for a living. I, I help people to move offshore. It's a real-life solution. It's a libertarian solution for eliminating your tax bill, for living in a country which does not focus on coercion, which has no standing military, for peace, for prosperity, and I love it. I think it's the greatest thing ever, I mean, to be able to help people with this. So your business now is 
helping people who want to expatriate to someplace else. I'm assuming and you're Canadian, but so are we talking mostly Canadians and Americans who want to leave their respective countries or? Yeah, I have clients from all over the world. However, I focus on Americans and Canadians because I really understand the laws, the mentality, the people who come from this part of the world. And it's a good-sized market. It's a big enough market. But I do have Norwegian clients. I have German clients. I have Serbian clients, Australians and Singaporeans and people from all over the world. But I would say the majority are certainly Americans and Canadians. I help them with their immigration status, with their structuring of the businesses, with the tax issues. I work as a consultant, so I help walk them through all of these types of things. I get the lawyer to sign off on all of the ideas, so we always stay compliant, we always stay legal. But yeah, that is the business. It's a fascinating business, and I, <laughs> I, I don't that you stumbled into it. I just, this is not the kind of thing the guidance counselor is going to say, hey, this is the job for you. <laughs> That's not going to show up on that test you take where it says you can be a janitor or a bus driver. I think I got janitor. There's very few people in the world who do the type of work that I do, and that's because you cannot go to school for this. I mean, it's just not possible. It's just, it's too many disciplines. There's too many things going on. And I personally know maybe one or two people who have traveled more than I have in their lives. Like, I mean, none of my competitors have traveled as much as me. They've None of them have done this much type of like real life things. Uh, the only person I can think of is Doug Casey, who is a friend of mine and I talk to him on a regular basis and he has more experience, but he's also in his 70s and stuff like that. I'm 39 years old. Anyone in my age group, I just don't think it's going to be possible because I started at such a young age. I started as a teenager. Right. Well, and there's really no reason the schools, the government schools are going to teach you or inform you that there's a way you can have a job that undermines everything they teach. Yeah, <laughs> that's just, exactly. that's not going to happen. Yeah. But it's funny because I, I tell that story at the beginning for a couple of reasons. Number one, because I want people to know that I'm not a lawyer. I'm not part of the state. I'm just not. I'm the exact opposite. I'm the anti on every single front that you could possibly imagine. And I'm actively trying to subvert <laughs> what's happening in the world. I mean, I call myself a libertarian, but I mean, in actual fact, I'm probably closer to an agorist or an ANCAP at this point. And the last two years has really solidified that. Like if I was already heading down that path, then the last two years have made sure that I'm firmly in this. But it's my experience from going through these state-run schools as a child that really showed me how inept and evil and corrupt all of these places are and I'm stoked that I went through that. I'm actually really proud of myself that I had the courage to stand up as a child and say, no, this is wrong, and peacefully remove myself from the situation. And I got an amazing life right now. I love what I do. I have a beautiful family. We make money in an ethical and honest manner, and I'm helping a ton of people. I mean, what else could you ask for? And you live in a tropical paradise. Exactly. <laughs> So you mentioned the last couple of years, and so you make the food joke to people when they say, how do you make minestrone soup? Well, there's as many ways to make minestrone soup as there are Italians to make minestrone soup. I think there are as many reasons to expatriate as there are people who want to do it. They may have shared, oh, I want fewer taxes, I want less 
overlords, but they, they all end up, I think, probably having very personalized reasons. But we have as a veneer on top of all of this, this great reset. And the people who want this want it earnestly. And whether or not you follow, I heard John Bush tell you, forget about Klaus Schwab, focus on you and your neighbors. That's a good advice, but it's not altogether easy to just forget about (laughs) what these people want to do and are actively trying to accomplish. Is there any country that you know of that is the least impacted by what they want to do? The short answer is this is everywhere. It's really in all of the countries that I've seen over the last couple of years. If you're looking for a magic place where it ticks all of the boxes, at the moment, it just does not exist. I think the name of the game is diversification. Being spread out in a few different locations and appreciating what each one of those places has on offer. I'll give you a couple of concrete examples. So I live here in Panama City. I love Panama City. I think it's great. They produce tons of food here. They have fresh water. It's a tax-free country if you do it correctly. There's no standing military. Amazing natural beauty, fantastic people to hang out with, and great restaurants and everything you could ever expect. However, people are still wearing masks on the street here. And It's ridiculous. And I don't know how anybody is still wearing a mask of what we've seen over the last couple of years. I mean, there's psychological damage. The government has done psychological damage to the people here and convinced them that everybody is going to die and you're going to kill grandma and grandpa if you're not wearing a mask, even in your car with the windows rolled up by yourself on a highway with no other cars. Like, you are a murderer if you're not wearing a mask and a face shield. I'm joking, but I'm not. It it happens. Like, you see ridiculous things here. So I accept Panama for what it is, all that great stuff that I mentioned to you at first, and I don't get bent out of shape because someone wants to wear a mask here. I have some clients who come down, and they just can't believe that people are wearing a mask here because they think this is supposed to be you know, the center of the libertarian world. And it's like, well, it is on nine out of the ten things, let's say. But don't let that hold you in place if you're living in New York or California because Panama is not perfect or Brazil is not perfect or Mexico is not perfect. It's like it's already better. It's already like a lot better. So just take things for what they are. And if you need to find a second or a third location that is going to fill those gaps, then you set up those plans, those plan Bs in those locations. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And there's a phrase I've heard people use that applies here, which is don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Here in my little teeny town in Southern Oregon, the face shields are gone. But every once in a while, I see in the grocery stores, customers no longer, is that true? There's one still in a restaurant, staff still wears the masks, but mostly in all the other stores, the staff does not. A couple of customers still do. Okay, <laughs> that's just it's that's going to be the new normal, I think. That there's some people who I can't say that they don't have a legitimate reason to do it. But for me, I don't have a legitimate reason to do it and they may have a need. I don't know, and they're not gonna harass them about it. That's a solid point. So really the thing to look for is someplace better than where you are, and if you're in the US, 
state by state, that could be better or worse. California and New York are probably some of the worst. Texas might be some of the better. So I'm targeting this talk really for the person who has never really considered this idea more than just to say, I heard this word. I know that you're really, your show is really getting into the weeds, either for the people who already have done this or are thinking really strongly and they're looking at some things and they're taking some steps. I found on your website a little PDF of like 15 different tips. And they're just little two or three sentence blurbs, but ways to get the prospective expat thinking. So one of the things that was interesting was a dual passport. It's like, well, <laughs> this sounds impossible. How do you do this? How do you get a second passport? Okay. So yeah, dual nationality and a second citizenship is something that we help our clients with all the time. And I think the PDF that you're referring to, if you guys go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection, you'll find it on there. There's a, a PDF, there's an updated one. It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Overseas or Abroad. Yeah, you can pick it up for free. I mean, I think there's some really great stuff on there. It's definitely going to send you in in the direction of many different rabbit holes. But to answer your question on how do you get a second passport, the very simple answer is there are many different ways. I kind of call it the, the four plus one method. And I can kind of run through them, you know, lightning speed, and then you can pause me or stop me, or, or we can dig in on any of the different ways that sound most interesting for you. So the one that's the fastest but not the cheapest is called citizenship by investment, where you're going to make an economic, in most cases, donation, but in sometimes could be real estate or a bond or some type of support of a, a cultural function, something like this overseas in a specific country. And in return for your investment is going to be citizenship. And with citizenship comes the passport. Passport is just a travel document. It's just your ability to come and go from different countries improves your, your status as a citizen. The citizenship is really what we're after because that's the legal right to say, you know, I am Panamanian or I am Costa Rican, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of these countries have these types of economic ways of entering in the country. It's called citizenship by investment. I've wrote about it tons at expatmoney.com. The big countries that do this are some of the ones in the Caribbean. There's one in the South Pacific, and there's a couple in Europe. So that's a very fast but pretty substantial route for getting this. This could cost you several hundred thousand dollars. A much cheaper way, but a more time-consuming way is called naturalization. Naturalization is the act of living in a country for a certain amount of time. And after that time, and, and probably passing a couple of tests and doing an oath of allegiance, et cetera, et cetera, you have the opportunity to become a citizen. Now, every country has its own requirements. Panama, for example, where I am, is five years of permanent residency. Then you can make an application to become a citizen. Canada's 1,350 days. Uruguay is three years. Switzerland is like 20 years. I mean, all of them are completely different. But these are good options for people who maybe don't have a lot of money, but have a lot of time. Also for the expats who want to move to a country, they get a residency, so the legal right to live there, a visa to live there, live and work there, and then eventually get a citizenship. So those are two of the best ways. I mean, 
in a nutshell, the other ones are through ancestry. So if your parents or your grandparents are born somewhere in Europe, you might get a citizenship through that. If you marry someone, you could get a citizenship. If you have a certain religion, then you could get a citizenship, you know, either directly or through your ancestors. If you have a child born overseas, then you can use that as a way to anchor you to yourself to the country. I mean, that's what me and my wife did. We flew down to Brazil. My wife gave birth in Brazil. So we have a little Brazilian baby boy. He just turned one years old. And he's a Brazilian citizen. And because I am the legal guardian of a Brazilian citizen, I'm able to get my permanent residency. And after having permanent residency for a year, I can apply for my Brazilian citizenship. It's called the Family Reunification Visa. It's a special plan that is legal in Brazil. And so there's all kinds of little loopholes and and different ways to go about this that you can get a citizenship and a passport. So that's kind of a long answer, but there's a ton there. I'm happy to dig into anything or take it in any direction you like. Well, I do have, I want to ask at least two things, and I don't mean to sound pejorative, but I think the, the common phrase is anchor baby, which a couple of years ago, and maybe more than a couple, but within somewhat recent memory and political memory, anchor baby was really a big deal, probably during Trump's administration. And they were, they, whoever they are, trying, I think, to either entirely revoke that idea or limit that idea. So you mentioned it as a case in Brazil. Is the idea of that pretty much in every country or is it more rare than common? So in most of the Americas, that is law. If the child is born there, then they are a citizen of that country. The advantages of, say, Brazil or Mexico is the time that it takes the parents or in some cases even the grandparents to get residency on that. There's, there can be a lot that happens from that front in speed and, and lack of documentation. I mean, there's still KYC and AML, but I mean, you just don't need to prove as much. But yeah, anchor baby is a derogatory term. I think it's hilarious because I actually don't think that it is. Like, I'm super proud that we went down to Brazil in the middle of a pandemic and didn't know anybody there and had the courage to give birth at a hospital in Portuguese, a language that neither wife nor myself speak. And we didn't know anybody and went through all this. It was a huge adventure for us. And I really feel like we're giving our child a massive gift. Like, this is Christmas. This is a gift for your child that is going to shape not just their lives, but their children's lives and their children's children. It's like a generational thing. So I'm super stoked that we went through this. Our first child was born in the UAE. We lived in the Middle East for eight years. So she was born in the Middle East. Unfortunately, they don't have a program like this. So my daughter did not get a UAE citizenship. But we thought with our second child, we're going to really be purposeful about this. So we went to Brazil. Inshallah, we will have a third child. And I think we would do Mexico, but there's other countries that we're considering as well. It gets really a bad rep for the U.S. where people from developing countries fly into the US to get citizenship there. They don't actually understand that what they're doing is shackling their child with lifelong taxation. And it is not a gift. It is actually a prison sentence. The US is the only country in the world that, ta actually, technically there's two, but 
for all intents and purposes, there's really one major country that taxes on citizenship. That's the US. The other one is Eritrea and Africa, which is known for blatant human rights violations. So I will let you make your own assumptions on the US. Everywhere else in the world, it's very easy to get out of your taxation if you just move, if you just leave. The US still wants to tax you no matter what, wherever you are. So you get someone from, I don't know, Asia or Latin America or Africa or anywhere in the world, they fly to the US, they have an anchor baby, then they fly back to their home country. Maybe they move the family to the US, maybe they don't. But at 18 years old, that child gets a surprise. They get a letter from the IRS saying that they owe money. And they may have not been there for more than the day they, they were born and got an, on an airplane and left. Oh, <laughs> so the child born in the UAE, is that child Canadian? Panamanian? Yeah. So in the Middle East, at least in the countries that I were living and spent time in, is the nationality of the father. So in my case, Canadian. My daughter was Canadian citizen right out of the bat. The, the last uh, item on that list of 19 is for, for Americans, renounce your U.S. citizenship. Now, I'm guessing that you have renounced your Canadian citizenship and are now, I'm guessing, Panamanian? So, as I was saying, U.S. is the only country in the world that needs to or does taxation based on citizenship, non, not residency. So, Canada, Germany, the U.K., everywhere else in the world, if you leave the country and you deregister yourself and you pay your applicable taxes that are owed in that country, I shouldn't say all countries, but at least the countries that I mentioned, you are now no longer beholden to that country. For the U.S. side, the only way to go about it is to get another citizenship somewhere else and then renounce, which means you are no longer an American. For me, I'm still a Canadian. I still have a Canadian passport. I can still travel to and from Canada. I'm still Canadian, but I'm not a Canadian resident. I'm a Panamanian resident. And Panama does not tax on either citizenship or residency. It actually taxes in what's called a territorial tax system. So they tax based on where the money is made. My money is made offshore in other countries, and I remit the funds. So I have been tax-free for the better part of 20 years. Wow. I don't pay tax. I'm a libertarian who doesn't pay tax. I don't just talk about the ideas. I actually make them concrete and real life because for me, taxation is theft, and I will never allow myself to be taxed again. Does Panama have like sales tax? I mean, yeah, so they have a 7% VAT tax. That is based on the goods that you're going to buy here. But income tax? No. Capital gains tax? No. At least so not you, if you're a foreigner, not if it's foreign sourced income. So when you go to the grocery store and stock up for the week, you're not paying taxes on groceries? So that what I'm saying is on certain goods in the country, and I don't even know on groceries, on like essential goods like flour or eggs or something like that, because I don't do the shopping. Even in the U.S., that's not from state to state that changes. And in some states, some food is taxed, some food is it's, – it's mind-bogglingly complicated, but well, that's interesting. Yeah, but for any of the <clears throat> enforced taxes on your income, on your profits, on your corporation – on the capital gains, on Bitcoin, on anything like that, territorial tax systems work very well. Not in all circumstances. I'm not giving individual tax advice. However, in a lot of circumstances, these do help the situation. It has to be done legally and compliantly. 
But this is what I help a lot of my clients with, is using different jurisdictions to make sure you are legally paying as little tax as humanly possible. Does that make sense? It does make sense. The other question I have is about the State Department. And back, I was working at a bakery in Somerville, New Jersey, and a great little town. I actually liked New Jersey as towns and geography and history goes very, very much. <laughs> Politics I could do without. But this little bakery had a French guy who was there to teach us what he knew about making croissants. It turns out the guy knew a lot, except his visa expired. And so he had to go back to France, and there was some, it was way above my pay grade, but some kerfuffle between the state departments and reissuing maybe all visas, but somehow or another, this particular fellow could not return to the U.S. For the people who go the second route trying to get visas is that an issue? Will the State Department, well, will, how would you know that? Can the State Department be a pain in the butt and just say, okay, you know what? You've had this plan or you've been in this country for four years, but you need five. We're not renewing your visa. So what we focus on when we're moving people offshore is what's called a permanent residency, which is the legal right to live and work there. Now, these permanent residencies, in most cases, do not have any type of time frame on them. As long as you are staying compliant, you're not going to be overstaying your visa because that's just not the type of visa that we focus on. As in, for U.S. State Department and what U.S. State Department does, I have absolutely no idea because I do the exact opposite of this. I am never bringing anyone into the United States. I am only bringing people out of the United States. So it's complete reverse. Like when we deal with expat issues, I'll take the French person and move them to Costa Rica or to Singapore or to Thailand or to Panama or something like that or the U.S. person to any of these countries. But I'll never take the French person and move them to the U.S. It's just not the business that I'm in. So as a blanket statement, the U.S. State Department doesn't really care about who's leaving. They're much more concerned about who's coming. That sounds right. There's bound to be exceptions, and this is not <laughs> the show for the exceptions. This is the broad strokes, but this is sure. that's okay. Your website and your show is called Expat Money. So let's talk a little bit about money, which, first of all, there isn't any, at least not in the U.S. <laughs> so you probably are familiar with a fellow named Nelson Nash and the infinite baking concept. you know what that is? Yes, I've done podcast interviews on it. I am familiar with the term. It's not one that I'm the most well-versed in. Like It's not one that I do myself by any means. Well, do you know, so if someone... If an American goes to Panama or somewhere else, do you know, would that system work for them in that other country? I think that the system that is set up in the United States or Canada with these types of things would continue to work. However, I'm not sure that these types of programs exist outside of North America. Okay. I, I Well, I don't either. And I, I, I talked to a fellow a couple of shows ago who is beginning his journey into becoming involved in the IBC. And I think he knows, I think he's better informed than I am about the <laughs> Everyone's better informed than I am about that. But anyway, I was just as a curiosity because I, I think that there's people looking into that. I did an interview with a woman named Rachel Marshall. I could not tell you what the episode number was. It was probably... 
about a year ago. So it's probably, I'm not sure. We're about to do like episode 190 or 192 on the podcast. We've been going for about six years. But if you look for Rachel Marshall, there is a ton of information in that episode on infinite banking. And she came specifically on to talk about it for the expat community. So I thought it was very interesting. That's good. All right, we're just going to take a quick break. So my friend Marco Wutzer from episode 137 has a foundational course on crypto and blockchain technology. And I really want you guys to take a look at this. I've been through the course myself and I actually learned a lot. Now, I've been in this space for about five years now and I've made a lot of money and I've lost a lot of money and, and I've made a lot of money again in it. But more than that, it's really about the technology. It's how this is shaping the landscape. And you know what? These things are not going away. Actually, it's becoming more and more prevalent in our life. There's new projects that are coming out, which are really going to change everything. And I don't want you guys to be left behind. So if you want to get up to speed with what is happening, and even if you have bought and sold Bitcoin a couple of times, but maybe don't understand every single thing, if you don't consider yourself an absolute true blue expert when it comes to crypto, then I think this course is very valuable for you. All you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash leap. That's L-E-A-P to check this program out. And I think you're going to really like it. So go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash leap. Okay, let's jump back into the interview. The thing that I think was the most interesting to me, because it never would have occurred to me on your list of 19, was go to another country and get a safety deposit box. Really? Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. So talk about why is that necessary? I, I think, so. Okay, obviously, we're going to keep important documents in there, but there's got to be something more to it than that. Absolutely, there is. Okay. So... From a couple of different fronts, I think something like this is important. First of all, I mean, a lot of times we're using it for precious metals. Now, precious metals that are held domestically in the United States that are in a bank vault are not very secure by any means. And still very easy for the long hands of the government to reach in there and take it away. Now, when you start using offshore vaulting companies and, and safety deposit boxes, it gets a lot more interesting. I mean, the U.S. is pretty powerful. Like, I'm not going to make a blanket statement and say that they're not going to be able to get it. I mean, look what they've done to Julian Assange. Look what they've done to other people who really piss them off. But in most cases, you're going to be considerably well-protected with an offshore vault company, which is not tied to a financial institution, which is more of a logistics company and a custodian. So these types of organizations, when you put things with them, it never enters their balance sheet. So it's not a liability for them. It's not an asset for them. They're not loaning again. It's not fractional ownership. We always do 100% allocated, 100% segregated storage or safety deposit boxes. The other nice thing with the safety deposit boxes is that you do not need to report the contents of it. So if you own precious metals and you have a key to your safety deposit box and it's held in your own name and it is offshore, once again, not tax advice. Actually, this would fall under the treasury and not, uh, not the IRS. But you shouldn't have to report anything like that. There's three things that are non-reportable. Foreign real estate held in your own name, not in a corporation, not in a trust, not in an IBC, but held in your own name. And safety deposit box, which I mentioned, or assets held in a foreign spouse's name. In these instances, you don't need to report it. 
everything else, any type of paper gold, any type of ETF, any brokerage account, any bank account over $10,000 in aggregate funds, all of these things are going to be have to be reported to the treasury if you're living overseas. So there's just like multiple reasons that a safety deposit box works. Precious metals, like we said, corporate documents, family heirlooms, a treasure or a ledger cold wallet for your crypto. All of these things can be held offshore in a vault that's stable and secure in a peaceful country that I don't think anyone's going to get to them, to be honest. I mean, the world would need to end in most cases for someone to get in these. And I've toured vaults in Singapore. Austria, Germany, the UAE, Singapore, Switzerland, Panama. I mean, there's an excellent vault down here in Panama where I live. I think it's a really good step for a lot of people. You mentioned two words that mean nothing to me in the safety deposit box world, allocated and segregated. What does that mean? All right. So what happens sometimes when you go to buy precious metals, it's fractional ownership. So you will drop off a gold bar. But when you come back in a week to pick up the gold bar, you get a gold bar. You get one that looks like it, but it's not it. Does that make sense? With 100% segregated, 100% allocated, that bar has a serial number on it. And when you come back in a week, a month, a year, a hundred years, you get the exact same bar. You're not getting one that was like that. So it has to do a lot with insurance. They're also not able to loan these out. They're not putting them on their balance sheet. It's on the shelf. There is a special spot. And from this centimeter to this centimeter is yours. And you're renting that space. And it has serial numbers. And they're just custodians. You want a place that functions as a custodian, not as a financial institution who's taking possession of it and put it on their their balance sheet, can do what they want with it. Like when you give your money to the bank, it's no longer your money. I mean, you right. have an account, but it's not your money. I mean, they're loaning that out. They're doing all kinds of stuff. Like who knows what happens with that money? They create money out of thin air on a lot of these cases. I'm not an international banker, so I'm not going to get into all of the nuances of how this is done. But I can promise you there's a lot of dodgy stuff that happens in banking. All right. So, and just understanding that you are not a money slash banking slash lawyer slash tax accountant professional, but in your... (laughs) I have to do so many caveats in this. I'm so sorry. I have to do so many caveats. I know. But in your experience, in your opinion, when people are buying through various different sources and some are probably more reputable than others, troy ounces of silver or gold that appear on the monitor to come with serial numbers and specific, this is your troy ounce of silver. One, it seems to me, and again, I don't know anything about this, that having some establishment that's built to keep people out, keeping that piece of silver and or gold on a shelf someplace is a lot more safe than being in my garage. Are those kinds of precious metal investments, if you can't hold on to it and put it into a safety deposit box in your future country of of choice, is that sound like a reasonable choice, again, in your opinion? Yes. Okay. I think that precious metals are important. I think that everybody, if you believe Austrian School of Economics, that owning precious metals is important. I would say, yes, having some buried in a pipe in your backyard is just prudent, especially at this 
point in time. Now, at some point, you're going to get up to a size of the position that you don't want to bury it all in your backyard or hide it under your mattress or whatever. So you will want to use some type of facility for storing this. My suggestion to you is when you're looking for facilities, look for something that has insurance on the entire volume that they're going to replace like for like, not just the value. Make sure the place is 100% allocated, 100% segregated. Just ask them that question. Are you 100% allocated, 100% segregated? And when they go, um, uh, uh, nah, then move on to the next vault and find the one that is. Do not use a bank. The bank is not secure. Safety deposit box at the bank are not a good place to go. Find a private institution that has a great reputation if you can only do it domestically, then do it domestically. If you can do it internationally, then even better. But yes, I think that these are all viable options and ones that people should look into. The statement safety deposit boxes in banks aren't safe, I'm paraphrasing. Is that a restriction to U.S. banks only or does that sentiment apply to banks worldwide? I have gone... Very far down the rabbit hole. And for me, I do not trust banks okay. for this type of things. So I personally, with my precious metals, would always go private with the caveat that you know the team that is involved. They have a good reputation. It is not going on their balance sheet and everything else that I already repeated. I mean, I use banking for day-to-day -day commerce. I use banking for merchant accounts and things like that. But I like precious metals for storing wealth. I like cryptocurrency and specifically Bitcoin. I like real estate and tangible assets, things that I can touch and smell and feel and taste and et cetera, et cetera. I like agriculture. I like more tangible stuff. I like things that are not manipulated and I like things that I can understand. I don't understand the stuff that happens in big conglomerate banks anymore. I would argue pretty much no one on planet Earth does because they're so massively complex that it's really hard to understand what's happening with your money. So I like simple things. And it seems like the regulations are changing all the time. Of course, yeah. For listeners who think this is a really good idea and for whatever the reasons are, simply cannot leave the U.S. So we, we talked about having diversity in wealth. Gold, silver, Bitcoin, real estate. I don't know if automobiles are a good store of wealth. They sure look pretty when they're in Jay Leno's garage, but I don't know. It's not, I don't know. I don't know anything about that area. That makes sense to me. So for, for the people who can't get out, well, whatever the reasons are, do you have some other suggestions for them besides this, besides diversification of cash, because there isn't any money? What can they do to at least? Is there a way to lighten the tax load in the U.S. so you're kind of pretty much screwed? All right. Well, there's a couple of different things in there. So I do a lot of plan B planning for my clients. I mean, you could basically divide my clients 50-50. Half of them are getting out. Like, they're done. Whatever that was, was if that was the masks, whether that was the vaccine, whether that was the war in Ukraine, whether that was the Canadian trucker convoy, whatever that breaking point for people was, people are getting out. That's half of my people. The other half are 
plan B. I want to have a residency, citizenship, precious metal vault, corporate structure, bank account, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, offshore so that if I need it, it's there. Whether that be a breaking point for them, another occurrence that's going on in the world and moving offshore, or or just want to feel more safe and secure at night and they sleep more soundly, then it's a plan B. Now, you asked about the taxation. I do not do domestic tax planning whatsoever. I only help out on the international side for the taxation. So what are the obligations when you leave the country? What are the obligations of the country that you're moving to? How is it going to look from the jurisdictions that we structure these assets and and companies and bank accounts and everything in? That's my core competencies. That's where I live and where I work. From the US side, what can be done? I mean, people can go and get a competent tax lawyer, domestic tax lawyer, and they can help on the planning side from that. I'm always going to be focusing on the the offshore stuff. However, to try to provide some value here, what I can say is that residencies, citizenship, foreign bank accounts, foreign companies, foreign gold storage, most cases can be done while you are still in the United States. Legally, you can set all of these things up. They can be done remotely, either via email with a little bit of DHL and FedEx thrown in, if needed, a Zoom call or two to to sign documents or to have things apostilled virtually. There's stuff that can be done. So even if, for whatever reason, you cannot leave, just physically cannot leave, in most cases, you don't have to. Make sense? Yeah. Your comment about you and your wife in a country where neither of you spoke the native language. So for the couple of days you were there needing the service you got, and then you're out, That's it's a fun story. I think that there's a side here for expats, and we're talking about emotional and mental health. When you go to a place where you don't speak the language and there is nobody who looks like you, it's it's easy sitting in my chair thinking about, wow, it would be great to go to this tropical paradise and drink Mai Tai instead of a coconut cup with an umbrella and sit on the beach. But once all of that's gone and you start living your life day in, day out and not being able to talk to anybody, there has to be some value, I think, in finding people who have done this who are from where you're from, so you have people who speak English, native English, who get the colloquialisms and they get the, you, you make a reference to the second episode of the third season of MASH, they go, oh yeah, there's value <laughs> in that kind of a shorthand. Do you have some suggestions for people to keep their mental health and their wits about them when they go to a place well, they mostly don't look like anybody else. For sure. I mean, that's why my program is called The Expat Money Show. We're moving to countries, and the big difference, I would say, between an expat and a digital nomad, and certainly an expat and a tourist, is that we incorporate ourselves into the culture. I mean, I've been in Panama for three years. I've learned how to speak Spanish quite fluently. When we went down to Brazil to give birth, we were there for six months. We ended up making wow. a ton of friends there. We ended up 
finding a libertarian group of doctors and cooked churrasco, like Brazilian barbecue with them three days a week and had a great time. And, you know, we didn't, I'm certainly not fluent in Brazilian Portuguese, but we learned a little bit while we were there and we were fortunate that they spoke English. I have lots of local friends in the countries that I go to, but I also have lots of expat friends. I mean, a community of people from all over the world. So yes, I know other Canadians. I mean, I was out for dinner last night with some other Canadians and I'm tonight going for dinner in about an hour with a German couple who are subscribers of mine and American clients and more American clients. And I don't know, there's probably a group of 15 of us who are expats. Most of them are clients of mine because we're, we're kind of helping to organize this. But yeah, it's kind of nice to have that fix of people who speak like the language, not just English, but English like you speak English, you know? On the same front, none of it is really scary to me. I mean, like I said, I left 22 years ago. I've lived in nine different countries. I just adapt so easily in these situations and I get a huge kick out of it. I like being uncomfortable in these situations and fumbling my way through and that's okay. I'll give you another example. So as we said, I'm, I'm Canadian. I'm born and raised in Southwestern Ontario. My family's from Denmark originally. My wife is from mainland China. We met in Germany. We got married in Africa in the Seychelles. My daughter was born in the UAE, in Abu Dhabi. My son was born in Brazil, and we live in Panama. We have homes around the world. We travel like crazy. Every day, at all times, there's three languages going in our house. My daughter is five years old, and she speaks native level. I don't just mean she's fluent. I mean, she's native level, English, Spanish, and Mandarin Chinese. And she's learning Russian as well. So every day at the dinner table, she's speaking to me in English, her mother in Mandarin, her nanny in Spanish, and then she goes and takes piano lessons in Russian and she sees her friends because there's a huge Russian community here and she speaks Russian with her friends here. That's her normal life. I mean, that's how she was born. We homeschool her. She's been to 15 countries. This is all normal for her. So she's a third culture kid. And we like this. It's not a negative of being an expat. It's a positive. This is what we live for. We like this type of stuff. You know, that's why we do it. If we didn't like it, we wouldn't do it. You know, you said something that made me think, and it's it's a valid point. And the statement or the idea is, I like being uncomfortable. And that's, I, I think that that's a valuable thing for people to recognize in themselves that either they do or they do not. <laughs> that's going to be important. I remember back in my cooking days when my, my chef, I was his sous chef at the time, we kept pushing each other to the level of discomfort. Because when you get in, in now, I don't, in, in my craft, in cooking, when you get complacent, which is what I think happens when comfort sets in, you make mistakes or you're not, you certainly lose focus. And when you're trying to be at this place was very cutting edge, had to, everything had to be on. Uh, we worked for a certified master chef, so slack, <laughs> slack wasn't allowed. Uh, comfort was the enemy. So push, push, push to the level of discomfort to find, to be on the edge and be ex- excellent. So that's maybe not really applicable in that sense to an expat, but... I think it is. I think it's a good analogy, actually, because... 
you need to recognize that the more uncomfortable situations you put yourself into, what you're really doing is you're challenging yourself. And every time you challenge yourself, you grow as a human being. If all you do is the same thing every day, if you just sit down with the same friends at the same pub, go to the same restaurants, watch the same TV programs, do the same job every day, how much are you growing as a person? I don't know many things in the world that will challenge you as much as being an expat. Just simple things like going out and getting a meal or paying your electricity bill turn out to be these whole new processes. And I get a kick out of it. I just think it's cool and neat and I like it. And when I do get too comfortable, like we did in the UAE after living there for eight years, we were very comfortable. It just felt like, you know what? Time for a change. Time for something completely new. And I like that. I mean, I wouldn't expect everybody to like that. And I don't expect anyone to do the type of travel or expat living or experimentation or giving birth in Brazil like we did. I'm crazy. Like, I mean, I do this for a living, so I need to test as much as possible. But I genuinely do like it. And that's why I've been doing it for so long. For a lot of people, just one or two of these strategies is enough. It's going to help them with sleeping at night, like I said. They're going to feel more safe, secure. They're going to have a bit of adventure in their life. I'm not saying by any means you need to go out there and do the crazy stuff that I do. You know, just a couple of prudent things in your life will really help protect you from the downside. You mentioned going out to dinner and with Canadians, so I'm <laughs> because I, I go to humor. So will you be talking about curling or hockey? Oh yeah, definitely both. Absolutely. <laughs> no, um, we went out the other day with. Uh, He's the largest property manager here in Panama. They hold, I don't know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of units here. And a couple of days before that, I met a Canadian who just bought, bought and renovated a entire city block in Casco Viejo, which is this is is just huge. It was an old Jesuit monastery from like the 1600s or something like that. Bought it, renovated it into like an incredible hotel. There's two restaurants open there with another five to come and Canadian guy. And I don't know how many he's sunk into this place. It just opened like four weeks ago and we were able to get a table right when it opened up and we went down there and met other Canadians. We actually met the ministry of tourism while we were there. Like, I mean, there's just crazy things that you happen with expats and with locals and just stuff that just would not happen back home. So That's yeah, fascinating. the Canadian culture and Canadian connections even play out here in Panama. So it's pretty neat. That's interesting. I'm going to have to see if I can go find that block and take a look at this, this monastery. The 1600 thing is the I like, there's something about history and then it's just weird in history things. And some things I really am interested in, some things I don't care all about. Sure, <laughs> but sure. that's interesting. When I was in Boston, walking the, okay, well, whatever, the Freedom Trail, take, you know, whatever about that whole thing. There's a lot of interesting history along the trail. And I like that kind of stuff. History is one of the coolest things that you get to experience when you're traveling around the world. And it can be modern history. It can be, it's just, it really gives you so much insights into who the people are, their perspective, and why they behave the way that they do. I love history, so I'm 
I'm constantly reading, studying, and trying to explore and understand cultures through their roots. No, I, th- I think that that statement is right. And I, th- I think, and I'm not sure this is defensible, but I think it's not wholly incorrect. Fundamentally, I think people are mostly the same, even when they're not in the same places. I think that their interests to grow, I know this is kind of getting deep and way off the course, but I think mostly we're more alike than we're disalike. I would agree with that statement completely. I mean, after visiting over 100 countries, I can tell you, by and large, people are exactly the same. They want the same things. They want a roof over their head. They want a full belly. They want to be loved. They want to protect their family. It's the same. I mean, I've been to North Korea. I've been to Iran. I've been to Zimbabwe. I've traveled. I've drove across Africa. I mean, I sit on the board of directors for a nonprofit in Uganda. I've traveled a lot. And people are the same. Like they're just, they really are. Just understanding their perspective is a lifelong pursuit and one that you will never get bored of. And just try to put yourself in their situation. It's amazing. And to tie things back to the culinary, understanding the history of food and how that shapes people is also really fascinating. Really fascinating. Why does food from this location, why is it prepared like this? What did the grandmother or the great-grandmother, how did they prepare food? I like that traditional stuff. I think that that's super, super interesting. And not just like in Europe, but like in every country I go to. I like all the traditional stuff. How it was farmed, why it's prepared like this, the seasonality, the, the location. I think it's super neat. Super, super neat. We're big foodies. We're sorry. We're big foodies, my wife and I. Well, good, because you have given me a spectacular, perfect segue into (laughs) the next part of the show. So this is, people have called it lightning round. It isn't intended to be that. You mean the questions are designed for single short answers, but you're welcome to elaborate. Of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, or umami? Bitter. I don't have to even think about this one. Before the question is answered, I'm... Huge into dark chocolate, artisanal dark chocolate. I mean, I like really nice espresso. I'm a celiac, so I can't eat anything with wheat. But when I was still eating wheat before I knew, I mean, a nice Guinness or like a stout in Ireland, I thought was like heaven on earth. And I wish I could drink a Guinness today, but I cannot, unfortunately. Don't do that. Yeah, it makes me really sick. What's your favorite food? Both my wife and I are big fans of really high-quality Japanese food. I don't mean just like sushi rolls, but like really nice Japanese food. We've spent a fortune going back and forth to Japan and just having amazing dinners there. I also love Thai food. We were actually going to live in Thailand at one point, but I didn't like their visa process. I also wanted to be back on Eastern Standard Time, so uh, we didn't live there. But I've been to Thailand at least a dozen times, and I love those types of fresh flavors. And because they use so much things that have rice in them, there's not a lot of gluten, so I can eat the entire spectrum of food. Yeah, we love Thai food as well. What you least favorite food? I don't think I have one. I mean, I like it all. Pass. No. <laughs> I like if there's any type of story there, if there's any type of culture, even like the food in Latin America, which is known to be a little bit boring, you know, like beans and rice, beans and rice, beans and rice. 
I still think it's neat and there's variation in different types of freeholders in different countries. I mean, I hitchhiked through Central America back in 2003 with a big red backpack and I tried beans, beans and rice a thousand different ways. And I all, I thought it was cool. Like I just like freeholders with breakfast, freeholders with lunch, freeholders with dinner. I was like, can I have more freeholders, please? I thought it was neat. You know, I, I'm okay with all that kind of stuff. What sound do you love? My son, when he laughs, oh my God, he's one years old. He just had his birthday last week and you can just goof off with him and make funny faces and wrestle him and stuff. And he gets this laugh, which is just, it's crazy. Like I record it and put it on my phone. And if I have to travel for work, I'll play it. I love that little man. And his laugh is just hilarious. It's so funny. <laughs> what sound do you hate? The cliche one, the nails on a chalkboard. That really does like literally put the hair on my arm standing on end and just gives me a disgusting shiver through my body. Like legit. Like it's not just a TV show cliche thing. That makes me want to vomit. What gets you excited? Starving the beast. Anything that I can do to help people to pay less taxes and legally so I don't jeopardize my own freedom. I just think that that is the best thing in the world. I literally jump out of bed every single morning, so stoked to go to work because I fucking hate the state and I want to starve the beast. What turned you off? Wokeism, social justice warriors, commies, virtue signaling, anything like that, I think is just all complete horseshit and just, I don't even want to associate with people who behave like that or act like that or try those games with me or, or attention seekers in any of this front. I just also makes me want to vomit. This one makes me want to vomit blood. Like I really don't like that at all. What's your favorite food indulgence? <laughs> uh, this is fun. I'm pretty strict with my diet in that I, I am also a health nut. I love food, but I always like to have high quality food. I don't eat a lot of sweets, but dark chocolate, really high quality dark chocolate is definitely my indulgence. I really like it. And it's actually not bad for you. In some instances, it's even healthy for you because of the flavonoids and, and all of these types of things. I really like dark chocolate. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I like sugar immensely. It doesn't care for me the same way back. So I've cut a lot of it out, but chocolate's a good friend. We've mentioned it, but just again, how can people follow you? So the easiest way is if you're on your podcasting app right now and you want another cool podcast to listen to, at least what I think is a very cool podcast, you guys can check out Expat Money Show. We've been going for about six years. We've had some massive guests on the show. We go really deep on a lot of the concepts that we just touched on today. And it's all about viable solutions for people who want to make positive changes in their life and, and have more freedom in their life. We talk about the passports, the residencies, the investments, entrepreneurship, remote work, all of these types of things. I'm very proud of the podcast. It's helped a lot of people. It's very popular. We have seen a huge growth over the last couple of years. So if you go and subscribe to the podcast at Expat Money Show. That's a good way. The other one is check out our new website, 
at expatmoney.com where you're going to find articles and you're going to find ways to work with me. If, you, if you're a high net worth individual and you need individual help, then you can work with me directly. And November 7th to 11th, we're doing an online summit called the Expat Money Summit. So if you go to expatmoneysummit.com, you can pick up a free ticket today. We're expecting 30,000 registrations for the event. It's going to be five days and we'll have between 30 and 40 presentations. This is going to be super exciting and other people in the industry are super pissed at me because I'm giving away the tickets for free, but I'm, so, I'm on an absolute mission, Dan, to get this information to as many people as possible because I think that it is the best vehicle towards real life freedom. I think that going offshore and being an expat is the vehicle to freedom. This is not theory. This is not just studying and, and education and just ideas. These are real life, concrete things that you can do in your life to regain the freedom and, and get control over your life again. So that one's at expatmoneysummit.com and you pick up a free ticket on there. I think those are three excellent places where people can follow my work. Very good. Well, I will put those on the show notes page, which for today's show is culinarylibertarian.com slash 193. Well, Mikhail, it has been a pleasure, and I have learned more about expatriation for peace and prosperity than I could ever have thought I would have gotten in, one, in an hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> Very happy to be here. Thank you so much for your time, and I like your lightning round. That was pretty fun. Well, I'm glad you liked it. So I was going to ask you, have you been to Scotland? Have you had haggis? I've not been there. But having a Chinese wife, I've had lots of other organ meat and interesting foods. I'll, I'll tell you one quick story. If you have time, I will tell you two quick culinary stories. I promise to make them as short as possible. When we went down to Brazil, my daughter came down. She was four years old at the time. And we went out for dinner one time, and there was my friend, he was a libertarian doctor, and he was bringing his new girlfriend out for dinner. And she's this young, beautiful little girl. And my daughter just attached herself to this girl. Just, I mean, she was probably about 25 or something. And my daughter attached herself. And we went out to a restaurant called Ostradamas. And it's an oyster restaurant in Florianopolis in the south of Brazil. Really famous, really beautiful place. And my four-year-old daughter goes to show off to this girl that she can also eat oysters. So she had daddy shuck an oyster and remove it and put a little bit of lemon on it, and she ate it. And she ended up liking it. She ended up liking it so much that she ate like two dozen oysters on that sitting and for the next couple of months was bugging us like, four days a week, five days a week to go out for oysters. I ate more oysters in Brazil than I've ever ate my entire life. So that's number one. The second one that she just fell in love with when we were in Brazil, and this is what made me think of it, was it's very popular to eat chicken hearts in Brazil. They do it on a churrasco style barbecue. And somehow my, at the time, four-year-old daughter tried a chicken heart and loved them. So she made daddy 
buy chicken hearts and skewer these things and cook them every single week with my Brazilian friends. And now the whole family, we all eat chicken hearts every time we go out for churrasco. Like what other four-year-old or five-year-old is going to eat that? Like she won't eat broccoli, but she'll she'll eat oi- raw oysters <laughs> and chicken hearts. 15 and a half and a 10-year-old, and I am absolutely confident both would not try either one of those things. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a fight to get the broccoli to go down. Although the chicken, the grilled chicken hearts, now this is like, I can get chicken livers easily in a little pine container and pretty much any of the grocery stores I go to, but I can't, that, that's the easy part. The the gizzards and the hearts and the rest of the stuff, it's in the chicken, maybe, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I haven't, you can I haven't buy seen them by the kilo there. <clears throat> so you just buy them and then skewer them yourself. And then they do these amazing either charcoal or wood barbecues there. And they have this special salt that they use. I don't know. Brazilian barbecue, we're obsessed with it. We just love it so much. And they do so much cool food down there. Shout out to Brazil. I just, amazing <laughs> food there. Amazing food there. I bet. Well, and I'm on a mission to see if I can find chicken hearts someplace and then give this a shot for myself. I won't even tease the rest of the family because I already know the answer. They're not going to do it, but I'll have it for breakfast. Very nice. Very nice. Dan, thanks so much for having me on the show and let me tell my story. And I'm really happy to help any of your audience. If you guys go to expatmoney.com, I'll do my best to assist. Okay. I'm confident of that. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, what an amazing interview today. I hope you guys got a lot of knowledge, a lot of inspiration, and really learned something new. If you guys have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or neighbors or anybody who is not agreeing with what's happening in the school systems today, if they have a international flavor, if they are digital nomads or want to be digital nomads, if they're expats or international families, homeschooling, world schooling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then I want you guys to check out our brand new program and expat school. That's right, expatschool.io. This is an amazing program that I've built with my very good friend, Michael Strong. He was actually a guest on episode 115 of the podcast back, what's that, a year or so ago, and we've been working hard since we met to build this school. He has a background in education. He's actually been doing curriculum design for over 30 years for Montessori programs, and he's a published author, and his experience in education is just unbelievable. So I think that I really chose the best partner possible on planet Earth for this. The full name of the school is Expat International School of Freedom and Entrepreneurship. So we're going to have a strong emphasis on programs and skills and abilities that will actually enable your child to build something, to be creative, to use their hands, to add value to the world, which is really what this show is all about. There's going to be second languages. There's going to be things like blockchain technology. I mean, actually get your kids prepared for what's happening in the world. You're going to give them a massive advantage over every other family out there. So as you can see, I am really excited about this. I hope you guys get a chance to take a look. It's at expatschool.io. You can sign up for our free newsletter to make sure that you stay in touch with us and hear about all the new news. And if it makes sense for your kids, if you have kids that are between the ages of 8 to 19, then schedule a call with us. We'll all sit down and go through the program and see if it makes sense for you and your family. That's it. Go to expatschool.io, and I will see you next Wednesday on the podcast. Have a great week.
This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.